Well, once again, good morning. A lot of life happening and very good to see everybody this morning. As we consider this story this morning, I'm going to encourage you to turn to Matthew chapter 9. It's always helpful, I think, to follow along in your own Bible as, as we walk through the Word and study the book of Matthew together. As we look at Jesus as the King who's come, and as we look at His kingdom and what it's like. And this morning is, is a definite, clear picture of what Jesus' kingdom is and what it's going to be. Last week, we left Jesus on the eastern shore of the Sea of Galilee. If you ever look at a map of Israel, there's the Sea of Galilee up north, the Jordan River that runs south into the Dead Sea. And most of Jesus' ministry was done around the Sea of Galilee, on the western shore of the Sea of Galilee, on the Israelite shore of the Sea of Galilee. And the, the eastern shore is really a, a, an outsider's place. It was the, it was the Gentile land. It was the, really the other side, if you will. And we left him there on the shore. There was, a, there was a dead herd of pigs floating in the water nearby somewhere. And the townspeople had come out and basically invited Jesus to leave. He'd accomplished what he'd come for. He'd, he'd freed these two, de- these two men of the demons that had possessed them. And the locals ask him to leave, and he gets back into a boat here. And he crosses, it says, over and came, and this is verse 1 of chapter 9, came to his own city. If you... Look back at chapter 4, we see that the name of his own city was Capernaum. He, he had grown up in his young life in Nazareth, but he began his ministry, and really his uh, kind of base of operations was out of this shoreside town called Capernaum, which was kind of a, an economic center for fishing and other things. It was, a, it was a town, it was a city of about 1,500. So it wasn't very big to modern standards, but in the region... It was a a major city. Now, you recall even before this, if you go even further back into chapter 8, Jesus was in Capernaum, and he was going around and healing people. And people were bringing sick people to him. People were bringing paralytics to him. People were bringing uh, those who were demon-possessed, people who had fevers, all sorts of sicknesses to him. And he was healing them, and all of a sudden, he gets in a boat with his disciples and leaves. And you can imagine... What the crowds were thinking at that point, it's like, really, you just got in a boat and took off? And if you see other accounts in the Bible, sometimes the crowds would actually follow Jesus around the lake. Like, he's going to the other side. We're going to walk over and meet him. That's how, how much we want to be near him. That's how much we need his healing. Others, uh, other accounts have people getting into boats and kind of following him along as well. But you could imagine those who were left behind ready for Jesus to come back, right? We need Jesus to come back home because... Jesus to, or excuse me, to bring this man to Jesus. They could have come miles carrying this man, there we go, thank you guys, um, carrying this man on a stretcher. And you can imagine, you know, if they had come from a different town or village, they'd heard about Jesus, they show up in Capernaum, and Jesus isn't even there. Well, now Jesus has come back, and we have this picture of him, of of the man. Behold, it says, some people, verse 2, brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed, it says, when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. Now, there's two versions of this story that are parallel to this one in the Gospel of Mark and the Gospel of Luke. And they both report that when this particular miracle took place, Jesus was at home, and they say that he was in a house teaching. 
In Mark's version of the story, it, it has four men bringing this paralytic, and, and they weren't able to reach Jesus because the crowd was so thick. They couldn't get into the house where he was teaching, but they needed to get to him. They were desperate to get to him, and so they climbed on the roof of the house. They tore open the roof, and they drop, or they drop this paralytic man down on his stretcher right in front of Jesus and put him there. Now, Matthew cuts to the chase. He takes all the exciting details, all the colorful things that we read a story and go, that was interesting, that, that story was entertaining. Matthew takes all that stuff out, and I think the reason he does that is because he wants us to look at one thing. He wants us to look at Jesus. That's what he does, laser focus on Jesus, leave all that other stuff out. We can actually learn something from Matthew here. Even as, even as Rob was directing us in prayer, we can look at all the stuff around us. We can look at all these interesting things. We can look at all the conflict. We can, we can get really afraid, or we can stop and look at Jesus. And that's what Matthew calls us to do. That's what he encourages us to do. That's the example he gives us. Let's bring our focus this morning, if you will, on Jesus, not on the lights going up and down or the, or the sound going in and out or anything like that. Let's focus on Jesus. And the first thing we see in this verse, in verse 2, when we look at Jesus, is that Jesus sees these people. Jesus sees the paralytic. Jesus, it says, saw their faith. So, so when we look at Jesus, when we focus our energies and our attentions on Jesus, we should recognize that Jesus isn't looking the other way. Jesus isn't, isn't looking at other people. He's not trying to get away from us. He's meeting us where we're at, and he himself is paying attention to us. And in this story with these men, he's particularly paying attention to their faith. We, we know the story from chapter 8 where Jesus recognized the faith of a Roman soldier, a centurion. He said, I haven't seen this kind of faith in all of Israel. And now again, he recognizes faith in these men. But the question is, what does he see? And this morning, we're going to see two acts, two aspects of their faith in this story. And the first is that Jesus sees faith. Jesus sees faith expressed in the simple act of bringing this man to Jesus, in getting him to Jesus. Dale Bruner uh, states it profoundly. He says this, quote, faith lives under one great compulsion, to get into the presence of Jesus. That's what faith wants to do. Faith wants to be with Jesus. So we should all ask ourselves the question, do I want to be with Jesus? Is my movement towards Jesus or away from Jesus? Faith moves towards Jesus. Faith is nothing less than coming to Jesus in our desperate need. Notice, too, that it's, it's not the man's faith that Jesus sees. Do you, do you notice that in the verse there? It says, when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic. Now, now that could include the man, that could include the paralytic, but for sure it's a plural pronoun. He's talking about this group of people. He sees their faith. He sees their action in coming to him and bringing this man to him. And this is a, this is a, a crucial, hopeful thing. This this man was a picture of inability. He was paralyzed. He could not move. He could not get himself to Jesus. 
There's no way that he could get there on his own. And honestly, he is a picture of all of our spiritual states before we've come to Jesus. We're all spiritual paralytics. Romans 3 tells us that, that we've, we've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. None of us does right. None of us seeks after God. None of us can get to Jesus on our own or in our own power. We are spiritual paralytics. We're in desperate need. We require others who have faith to bring us to Jesus because we can't do it ourselves. We need others to bring us to him in faith when we can't get up and come to him on our own. Have you, have you ever found yourself or felt like you're in a state of spiritual paralysis? Even if you are a believer, even if you are a follower of Jesus, felt like you were just desperately spiritually ill or low or ashamed or depressed, desperate, hopeless. I think there are times when we're like that, when we have to borrow someone else's faith. And we have to, to lean on their faith for a time so that they can advocate for us, so that they can pray for us, that, to make a way through the crowds and carry us into Jesus' presence. And I think if, if we have to depend on others to get us to Jesus, and, and a lot of times that's through prayer, just people praying for us, Praying for me, I had no less than three or four people tell me this week specifically, you don't know how much I pray for you. Which I, you don't know how much that means to me that you pray for me. Because what happened with the lights this morning, that was happening in my soul all week long. Tired, feeling attacked, feeling oppressed, feeling down, beaten. I need you to take me into Jesus' presence. You need each other to take you into Jesus' presence at times. On the flip side of this coin, we need to be those people for our brothers and sisters who are hurting, who are paralyzed, who are stuck, who are in need of meeting Jesus and experiencing his kindness and his grace and his, his mercy, his compassionate forgiveness. By faith, we bring others to Jesus. We do this through prayer, like I just said, but I think we also do it through our witness. We, we call it evangelism, through saying to others, come and meet someone who has looked past my handicap, who has looked past my paralysis, who's looked past my brokenness, who's looked past my sin, and has welcomed me and has forgiven me. That's what witnessing is. That's what evangelism is. Telling someone about Jesus who's changed your life. Now, many of you have been praying for loved ones for years. Maybe you're praying for your parents. Or you're praying for a spouse. Or you're praying for your children or your grandchildren. And you are regularly bringing them, carrying them into the presence of Jesus begging him to draw them to himself, begging Jesus to, to wake them up spiritually, begging Jesus to, to forgive their sins and bring them to faith. And in that, this is exactly what you're doing. You're like these friends who are bringing invalids to Jesus and trusting him with their hearts and with their souls and with their healing and their forgiveness. And I want to encourage you. I know there's saints in here who have been praying for family members and loved ones for decades. And I want to encourage you that in this story, Jesus is calling you to persevere in your prayers and in your witness for those you love.
When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, take heart, my son. Another translation of that, uh, those words would be, take courage, child. Take courage, child. Your sins are forgiven. And when we come to Jesus, I love this. I love how Jesus speaks to this man. Because when we come to Jesus, we, we come in desperate need. Perhaps we come ashamed with our eyes averted or down, or we, come, we might come to Jesus angry. We might come to him frustrated or confused. And what we, what we come and find in Jesus is sometimes shocking. It's not always what we expect. And, and the first thing that might shock us is Jesus' compassion, his endearment towards us. He doesn't look at us with a, with a look of condemnation or a look of judgment. We find in him a look of compassion and love. When, when he sees a par- paralytic and he looks in his eyes and he says, take courage, child. What do you imagine his face looking like? I mean, just imagine Jesus' face in that. A face of tenderness and kindness and compassion and love. We find in Jesus a hospitable Savior who welcomes us with kind Words, take courage, child. These words are an expression of tenderness, of kindness, of endearment towards this man. Jesus meets us with mercy, love, and compassion. And some of us are quite honestly shocked by that. The second thing that might shock you about Jesus' response is his remedy for the situation. Okay, when you're carrying an invalid, on a stretcher for maybe miles and putting them in front of Jesus, what are you implicitly asking him for? Healing, right? <laughs> like, fix the guy. Like we, and it might be like, hey, we dropped this guy out of a window last week and we'd really like you to... <laughs> we don't know why the guy was... We have no idea why he was paralyzed. Maybe he'd been that way his entire life. And they love this man and they want him to be healed. So when you come and place a sick person in front of Jesus, you want him to say, get up and walk. But Jesus shocks us. He doesn't say that. He looks at the man, take courage, child. Your sins are forgiven. And and oftentimes with Jesus, when we think we need help in one area, and that's what our prayers are all about, help me with this, help me with this, help me with this, Jesus says, I'm gonna help you with this. This other thing over here, this is what you really need. This is what you really need from me because Jesus tends to know the things that we truly need. Amen? So this man obviously desires physical healing, but Jesus instead gives him forgiveness. So it's surprising to our ears as 21st century Americans to hear Jesus say, your sins are forgiven, when the obvious problem with the guy was that he couldn't walk. But in the context of the day, Sin and sickness were often related. And we'll see in verse 3 that some of the religious teachers actually take issue with Jesus claiming to have the authority to forgive this man of his sins. But it's, it's likely, though, that behind their response, they also may have assumed this this understanding that because this man was a paralytic, therefore he was a sinner and he was receiving the judgment for his sin through his paralysis. I mean, look at the guy. He's paralyzed for crying out loud. How could God say anything more clearly about the state of this guy's soul? Judgment had obviously come upon him in bodily form. And I find it likely that the the scribes, the Pharisees, would have struggled 
with Jesus' healing ministry as a whole, right? Here's this guy going around the countryside, healing all these people, and they could easily ask the question, why in the world would you remove all these ailments from people who are obviously being judged by God? They deserve it. Let them have it. You see the train of thought here and where that can go? If you're, if you're opposing the judgment of God on these people's lives by healing them, by taking away their sicknesses, then you're opposing God. And who opposes God? The devil, right? Who opposes God but the devil? Well, guess what? In a few chapters, they're going to turn to Jesus and, it's say, and say, it's only by Beelzebub, the prince of demons, that you cast out demons. So they're not far from getting to that place where they're going to be able to look at Jesus and say, you're working for God's enemy. You're working for the evil one. You're working against the kingdom of God in the world. Now, that's, that's one view of sickness and sin. In our culture today, we tend to view sickness and disease as, as a purely physical matter. No, no spiritual connection whatsoever. When it comes down to it, any sickness, whether it's physical ailment, a, a mental illness, emotional sickness, can be reduced to material causes, some sort of malfunction in the body, some sort of chemical imbalance, some sort of disease that has entered the body and is attacking it. And so the, the procedures for, for dealing with any kind of disease then, change your diet. Let's put you on a different medication. Let's, let's get you into therapy. Let's, let's do a surgical procedure to cure the ailment, any ailment known to man. That's how our culture tends to see sickness. But Jesus, I would contend, doesn't see sickness and illness in either of those simplistic ways, as our culture sees it or as, or as this culture saw it. For Jesus, it was certainly possible that any particular illness could be the judgment of God. Okay, he meets a man in John chapter 5, who's a paralytic, by the way, heals the guy who complains the whole time, and then the guy goes and tattles on him. Gives him away to the Pharisees. He goes back and finds this guy in secret. He's like, stop sinning or something worse is going to happen to you. Right? Tell him, like, what could be the result of this sin? Well, in that one instance, he doesn't speak real clearly, but a few chapters later in John chapter 9, he speaks really clearly. His disciples see a blind man. They say, Who, why is this man blind? Is it because he sinned or because his parents sinned? What's the assumption? Someone sinned, and that's why this man is blind. Sin causes sickness. And Jesus said, no, that's not the issue. The issue here is that God wants to be glorified, and that's why he's blind. And the book of Job teaches us that there's not always a one-to-one -one correlation between a particular sin and a particular sickness. Another time, he actually calls a woman's illness in Luke chapter 13 a bondage of Satan, and as you recall, I said last week that Jesus is clearly seeing his healing work as an assault on Satan's kingdom. Okay, so add, add all to this, all of this, that overall the Bible is clear, though, that illness in general in the world is a consequence of sin in the world. So to have a holistic view of sickness, we must understand that physical illness and spiritual sickness, including sin, can be connected in deep ways, although we don't know the mystery of it. We can't define it. 
Oftentimes our bodily ailments are tied though to spiritual issues in ways that we don't realize, that we don't understand. You look at the book of James chapter five and James directs the churches. If you're sick, call the elders to come and anoint you with oil and pray over you and confess your sins one to another so that, what? You may be healed. So that you may be healed. And James seems to teach that oftentimes, not always, but oftentimes, prayers for healing must begin with prayers of confession. And Jesus, here's the crazy thing, that back in our story in Matthew 9, Jesus is the one who makes the connection between sin and sickness. These people come for healing, right? They want a solution to a physical problem, and he grants forgiveness, he solves a spiritual problem. And he grants, for, or excuse me, then as proof, so as proof of this forgiveness, the this, this spiritual solution, as proof that that's actually happened, he also turns around and heals and gives the physical solution. So he's, he's doing this connecting point. Here's a, here's a physical problem, here's a spiritual solution. And the two in Jesus get connected. Jesus is showing that sin and sickness are connected, not always one-to-one, not always in a way that we can understand and define, but as the one who is able to forgive sins, he is showing himself here to be the one who has the power to make the whole world new and whole again. So when Jesus comes as the Messiah and begins to forgive sins, you know what we have there? We have the picture of a new creation coming. A new creation in which all of our bodies will be made new. Sin and sickness will be done away with. There will be no more tears, no more crying, no more sickness. All will be made whole. And where does that start? Amen. Where does that start with Jesus? It starts with the forgiveness of sins. As for the paralytic now, getting back to him, this poor guy just laying there. We, we've left him laying there for half an hour. We can't assume, we can't just assume that his paralysis was a result of his sin. However, from the way that Jesus interacts with him, it seems that the man himself believed that his disability and his sin were somehow connected. It would have made much more sense for Jesus to simply heal the man if that's all he needed. But in looking him in the eyes, telling him to take courage, calling him child, and then forgiving him, responding to a sinner with forgiveness rather than to a paralytic with healing, Jesus meets the man's deepest need, maybe even his deepest desire. So going all the way back to the beginning of chapter 8, Jesus has now moved us beyond leprosy. He's moved us beyond illness through storms at sea to demon possession. We've now moved to really serious matters, brothers and sisters. We've moved to the forgiveness of sins. Verse 3, And behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, This man is blaspheming. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why do you think evil in your hearts? Blasphemy is defined as when someone disrespects uh, the name of God, usually through their speech. They they speak in a way that takes away honor from God. So, So blasphemy, though, can also be taking 
prerogatives or authority or power on yourself that don't belong to you, and then they steal from God. So Jesus, in this instance, doesn't say to the man, hey, hey, brother, God forgives you. He speaks in such a way to where he's saying, I forgive you. He claims an authority to forgive that belongs to God alone. This is why they get subsidized. This is why they get upset. So you can imagine me coming in here and saying, hey, everybody, guess what? All your sins are forgiven. Go home and have a nice lunch. You would begin to question my sanity. You would begin to question my ability to teach the truth, right? But Jesus does this, and they're troubled. They're concerned about it in their hearts, whether it's kind of whispering with each other in their, in their hearts. They're thinking, this is blasphemy. Then Jesus calls them out. Jesus calls them out. Why do you think evil in your hearts? So they accuse him of speaking evil words, and he turns right around and accuses them of thinking evil thoughts. So the conflict is decisive and clear, really. Jesus isn't mincing words here. He's clearly, strongly claiming divine rights. He doesn't back up and say, no, 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 you guys just don't understand. That's that's not what I was saying. I wasn't saying I was God. He doesn't say that. He turns around and says, you have evil thoughts. And your evil thoughts are questioning who I am. And he'll, he'll be really clear about this in chapter 12, about this kind of blasphemy that they are committing. And there's a clear contrast, interestingly, if you look between verses 2 and 4, there's a clear contrast between the paralytic and his friends and the scribes. In verse 2, it says, and Jesus, seeing their faith, responds to them. And then in verse 4, with the scribes, it says, and Jesus, knowing their thoughts. The, the, The grammatical parallel is clear that what Matthew's doing here is he's contrasting these two groups. And he's saying, those who think evil thoughts, you do not have faith, but the ones who have faith are doing exactly opposite of them. So what does that say about faith then? If their faith is to accuse Jesus of not being divine, of not having the power to forgive sins, then faith is, the second part of faith, I already talked about the first, faith is believing that Jesus has the divine authority to forgive. First of all, faith is coming to Jesus, right? We saw that, coming to Jesus, coming into his presence. And then secondly, it's trusting and believing that he has the divine authority to forgive. Jesus then puts his claim to the test in verse five, asks a rhetorical question. He says, for which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise and walk? Which is easier to say? It's easier to say your sins are forgiven because I don't have to prove it, right? There's nothing I can show to prove it. It's a lot easier if you're laying there invalid or a lot more difficult to say, get up and walk. But that you may know, verse 6, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he then said to the paralytic, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and went home. And Jesus is just really laying down the gauntlet here on his identity and pointing to his power to heal pointing to his power to heal this man as evidence, as proof positive of his power to forgive sins. Jesus is bringing to bear then on earth what should seemingly be reserved for heaven alone. Only God forgives sins, and and Jesus is saying that he, the son of man, is bringing what's reserved for heaven down to earth in his person because he is the one who dwells in the highest of heavens. Earlier I said that Jesus 
himself shows us that sin and sickness are connected. And that as the one who is able to forgive sins, he is showing himself to be the one who will bring in a new creation, who will make the whole world new. Well, let's flip that statement around and say this, that as the one who is now able to heal bodies, Jesus is showing himself to be the one who has the power to forgive sin and give us peace with God. What do you think? This man gets up, picks up his bed, walks home. Did he rejoice more because he was walking or because his sins were forgiven? I'm going to say probably rejoiced in both of them. (laughs) But which meant more? Which was deeper? And if nothing else, I should say, gives us hope in life, it ought to be this one thing that now we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through the forgiveness of sins. And you might say, well, yeah, life sucks. It's hard. Ah, but you're forgiven. Yeah, but I'm sick all the time. I'm sick of being sick. Constantly have chronic pain and illness. I don't know what to do. I'm I'm down, I'm beleaguered, I'm oppressed. Ah, but the Son of God looks on you with compassion and says, take courage, child. Your sins are forgiven. Ah, but I can't get past my grief, my anger, my bitterness, my oppression, my fear. Take heart, child. Your sins are forgiven. The forgiveness of sins is the single most important, most profound, sweetest gift that Jesus could possibly give to us. Why? Because in that forgiveness, he gives us his Father. He gives us himself. He gives us restored relationship. And brothers and sisters, that's the gospel. That's the gospel, what Jesus does in bringing us peace with God and giving us forgiveness. This is what Psalm 32 says. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. And there's this picture there that this man isn't confessing. The psalmist has not confessed. He's kept silent. And he, he, the result is physical illness. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgression to the Lord. And you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Forgiveness is healing to our souls. Jesus can heal our bodies. He's still the great physician. He can do that. But the healing of the body is only a mirror of the greater healing that happens in our souls when we receive the forgiveness of Jesus Christ. The story ends with this sentence. It says, When the crowd saw it, they were afraid, and they glorified God who had given such authority to men. Three times in the last few chapters, Jesus causes astonishment and fear in people. And you'll notice as I read these, the increasing unveiling of Jesus' authority, from teaching to power over the physical world, and then finally to power over sin. So in chapter 7, verses 28 and 29, they're basically asking, who is this that teaches with such authority? 
And then chapter 8, verse 27, after he's calmed the sea, they say, Who is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? And then now in chapter 9, verse 8, they say this, Who is this that has authority on earth to forgive sins? And that's the question that we must answer today. Who is this? We can respond like the scribes did. We can reject him. We can oppose him. Or we can respond in faith. And as we've seen, faith is coming to Jesus. It's coming into his presence. It's recognizing him as the king. It's trusting that he has, he and he alone have the authority to forgive sins. Because Jesus has that authority. And not only that, but that's what he wants to do. He wants us to come and ask for forgiveness and look us in the eye and say, take courage, child, because your sins are forgiven. But we can't do that if we don't come to him. We can't do that if we won't look to him for the forgiveness we need. He's always ready to meet us with grace and mercy because that's who he is. The question is, will you see that that's who he is and come to him? The greatest gift Jesus can offer any of us is a restored relationship with the Father through forgiveness of sins, through faith in him. And, and healing and holiness begin with this spiritual reality. And this morning, we, as we do most every week, because we need the reminder, we're taking of the Lord's Supper. And if you would come this morning in faith, coming to Jesus, looking to him as the only one who can forgive you, who, the only one who can take away your sins because of his work on the cross, if you would come to him in faith this morning, I'd encourage you to take and eat and be reminded that he looks at you with compassion and love and grace and hospitality and welcomes you in as his child. And as 1 John 1, 8 and 9 remind us with this assurance of forgiveness that if we confess our sins, it says he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So as we continue in worship this morning, would you come, if you're a follower of Jesus through faith in Christ, if you would come to him with simple faith, as this paralytic did, and receive his grace, I'd invite you to come and take part in the table this morning. But first, would you pray with me? Jesus, we do come to you this morning, and we realize that the enemy does not want us to hear the gospel. The enemy does not want us to see the gospel or to, to experience the gospel, to taste the gospel. The, the enemy does not want us to carry and bear each other into your presence when we can't do it our, on our own. The enemy does not want us to intercede for one another, to, to bear witness to your healing and forgiving power. The enemy does not want us joining your kingdom, King Jesus. And yet this morning we would come in faith defiant to the enemy and come, bow our knees to the king, knowing that you see us with grace and compassion and forgiveness, knowing that the only way we receive judgment is when we turn and we walk away. So Jesus, would you, would you embrace this morning those whose hearts are fearful, those whose hearts are timid, those who, whose hearts are feeling ashamed or guilty or depressed, those who feel cold, Lord, would you, would you draw them to yourself this morning? You're the only one that can do that. And would you meet us all in this place with your grace, mercy, compassion, and forgiveness? 
Take courage, children. In Christ, your sins are forgiven. Amen.